Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for being with me here today. It is Wednesday, May the 20th. Got a good show lined up for you here today. The uh, province has announced that more than 250,000 eligible frontline workers will receive temporary pandemic pay and a lump sum payment of about $4 an hour for a 16-week period that dates back to mid-March. I'll be speaking with the president of the BC Government and Service Employees Union about their calls to expand that program even further. And to end things off, I'll be joined by the president of the Kamloops Dental Association to talk about how local offices are going about reopening in a safe and secure manner. But to begin today's show, I am joined on the line by Alex Hemingway, who's an economist with the Public Finance, or sorry, with the uh, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives BC office. We're talking about uh, how Canada's parliamentary budget officer has said it's not unthinkable that the federal debt could reach $1 trillion during this fiscal year. Alex, thanks so much for uh, taking the time here. Really appreciate it. Doing well. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Okay, so uh, you put out this piece that's it's titled Don't Fear Government Debt After COVID-19. I just want to maybe start by getting you to explain why you feel that the public should not be scared of this massive debt and these massive numbers that are being projected here. Well, they are they are big numbers, uh, and you know we hear the the annual deficit pr- projections or or some of those long term debt numbers, and they can sound scary. I think the the important thing is to uh, put them in perspective, and uh, for for a number of reasons that this is really not something that we should be concerned about right now. You know, there are a lot of things to worry about right now. This isn't one of them. And one of the reasons for that is, uh, first of all, uh, borrowing costs for government are extremely low right now. So those interest rates that uh, the government of Canada, uh, for example, pays on a 30-year bond are are hovering around 1%. They're very low. And so what that means is it it depends on how you're using that money. So if, if you're making public investments that have even relatively uh, uh, modest social and economic payoffs, uh, you're actually going to end up better off than if you didn't make those investments. So, for example, you know, if you're investing in a piece of infrastructure or helping uh, uh, keep households uh, afloat, uh, that's going to uh, uh, yield an economic payoff in the medium and long term. Uh, and, and there's very good reason to believe that payoffs is going to be bigger than the interest being paid on that debt. So, you know, we don't uh, love the idea of going uh, uh into debt per se, but you got to trade that off against what the alternative is. Okay, so borrowing costs for government, extremely low. Okay, that makes sense in, in terms of, uh, you know, why taking out debt now makes makes sense, right? Especially when we're trying to get people off their feet, especially, uh, you know, as we go through this really hard time for a lot of people who are losing their jobs or having to close their businesses or at least, you know, shutter them for some time. It, of course, there makes a lot of sense why, um, you know, some of these programs might be of more benefit to, to, the, to the public than it would be to be worried about what that public debt is. Uh, um, actually is going to look like come the end of the year. But uh, I guess what, what other reasons, aside from that low borrowing costs, what, what other reasons can we have here? I mean, one of the things that I see that you put in your piece here was talking about just how long the government does have to pay back some of this debt. And, and you know, why is that something like when you look at uh, the flexibility, I guess, that comes with being a, a, a government and taking out money and, and, and having that debt, why is that something that's advantageous as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the alternative to taking on government or public debt right now, if people are going to make ends meet, really the alternative to that is piling more private debt on households that are already badly over over leveraged. That's not something we want. And so one of the benefits of uh, using our sort of shared collective institutions like government to bridge ourselves uh, during a period like this is, you know, unlike a household, governments have very long uh, time horizons over which to to manage their debts. You know, if you're a household, you've only got so many working years, so many years of income to to expect. Government's in quite a different situation. And, you know, we know from past experience, uh, we we went through this in World War II, Canada's debt to GDP ratio rose uh, above uh, 100% coming out of that war, uh, but we know from that experience we can come out of a crisis like this and, and manage those debt loads uh, while the economy grows over time. So that long time horizon for our government is important. Uh, and, you know, the, the, there are other pieces to the puzzle here, too. You know, one other that I think is important to mention is we, we are a very, very wealthy society, uh, but we're also a very unequal one. So another way that we can manage these costs over time is uh, uh, by uh, getting a little bit more serious about taxing the super rich in, in our country uh, and uh, using those funds to help fund those public investments on an ongoing period of time and, and to service those debts uh, as we pay them down. And, and when, I just want to double back there. I mean, you talk about the experience of, of World War II and, and how that sort of uh, can be compared, I guess, to this COVID-19 crisis in terms of just the debt we're going to come, that is going to come with with, uh, with what's happening here in the world. Um, is that a fair comparison? I mean, we're talking about something that was over 70, you know, 75 years ago here when we're talking about coming out of World War II. I mean, is, how, how do you compare those two, uh, the, these two, um, you know, world uh crises that we're going through yeah it's a good question so it's not to say that they're they're the same event by any means but what it points to is the fact that uh we have been in a situation where we where our debt levels and that key measure of debt as a share of our total economy our debt to gdp is one of those key measures uh we were far far above uh uh where we are today on that measure and we managed to climb our way out of it now it's true we we wouldn't necessarily expect economic growth to come back uh uh as strongly as it did after the second world war uh but i think the crucial issue is when we're taking on debt if we're using it for productive investments whether that's keeping people afloat or or strengthening our infrastructure we know that that pays off in terms of long-term productivity in our economy and that actually in itself boosts our long-term economic growth potential so we get sort of a double benefit there's the short-term economic stimulus that you hear people talk about when government spends in a crisis uh, but if you're investing it smartly investing in infrastructure investing in people you're actually improving the long-term productivity of, of the economy as well and that's going to boost our growth that means uh, we're able to manage those debts over time as well taking care of each other okay and and your last point here i wanted to get it in here before uh we sort of move move on but uh, just talking about how we much of the the debt that is currently being owed right now is actually owed uh to the bank of canada why why is that something that is, is important to point out well it's worth keeping in mind because i think when we talk about debt it can sound a little bit mysterious we often actually don't really talk about who that debt is owed to uh it, it may be uh owned by private investors on the market but as it happens uh, a huge amount of the debt that we're taking on right now is actually owed to ourselves it's owed to the bank of canada our central bank and so when we're our own creditors 
uh, we know that we have a bit more uh, flexibility if push comes to shove in terms of uh, rolling over that debt uh, or uh, looking at the repayment terms and, and timelines. So, you know, uh, we shouldn't be uh, um, uh, cowed by this construct uh, of debt. We should you know, think about the concrete reality of it and, and that we are in this interesting situation where we're our own creditors for a significant amount of it. So that's just that's just one other element of the flexibility that we have here. Now, I mean, of course, you make a lot of interesting and, and good points, I think, as to why, you know, we, we shouldn't necessarily be overly concerned with the, the public debt, especially in a time like this where I think, you know, people is more important than money at this stage of the game. Uh, that's my personal opinion anyway. Um, but there are a lot of people out there who are concerned about the growing debt and the impacts it could have on things like borrowing and, and just the economic uh, impacts as a whole as we start to recover. I mean, uh, I know, like I said, I think it's important that we have these programs. I think it's, it's needed yeah. for a lot of people out there. But there is the other side of this, too, where there is a lot of concern. Um, I, it, you know, what, what do you say to those people who, who have, um, you know, a real fear of, of what this means? As we see this debt pile up, what does it mean to consumers here uh, in the future when hopefully there is a time when we get to see things stabilize and, and uh, the world go back to maybe a pre-COVID level? Yeah, I think it's it's really important that we talk about this because uh, we are going to hear soon more and more uh, uh, calls for belt tightening and, and and cutbacks over time as we return to normal, uh, and and a lot of that's going to be framed around this uh, fear of public debt. I, I think uh, it's important to keep in mind uh, two things. One. Uh, when we're making smart public investments, that's not only the right thing to do, but that's actually going to pay off better over the long term than failing to make those investments, damaging households, damaging uh, the growth prospects of the economy uh, if we don't make those investments. The other piece is uh, that, look, uh, we are an incredibly uh, resourceful, skilled society. Uh, We have the capacity to get back to that growth potential uh, uh, over time. And I think that's what we need to be focused on uh, uh, rather than uh, uh, moving too quickly back to that uh, cutback mentality. The real uh, uh, danger, uh, I think, uh, we need to be on the lookout for, and we just saw today, uh, um, uh, deflation in the economy. That's the real danger as uh, households uh, that are over leveraged, uh, feeling uncertain, uh, aren't able to uh, uh, spend that can spiral into a, a downturn in the economy and that's why uh, we need that public investment to, to boost us back up on a human level and on an economic level all right alex well i really appreciate you taking the time here i just have one more question here for you but uh, just when we're talking about this wealth tax and you brought it up a couple of times here throughout our chat and just talking about taxing the super rich i mean it's been a concept that's been you know bandied about for quite some time but yet no government ever really seems to be serious about doing it right they like the idea of it they like to talk about it every once in a while but then it never really seems to happen do you think this is something that you can ever really see i, I almost want to say in our lifetime where where the super rich actually do uh, get taxed a little bit higher than they already do. I mean, I, I know for those listening, yeah. if they are part of that super rich, I mean, good for you, and I'm jealous, and I want to be a part of it. But, um, you know, for the most part, I think people um, aren't in that category and would be more than okay with seeing a, a little bit more tax uh, investment made on their behalf. So it is possible. It's more possible than it's ever been. In in technical terms, we know how to do it, and there's great uh, 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 researchers and public policy folks working on that Uh, in different countries. So this is bubbling up in the U.S., 
Uh, there was just polling uh, in, in the past couple of days in the UK, uh, increasing talk about a wealth tax there. Technically, we can do it. It's a question of political will. And that, in turn, is a, a question of what you know uh, Canadians want and, and the sort of uh, uh, pressure and attitudes they express uh, out in our public discourse and our politics. So we can do it if we want to. Uh, uh, we, we can share that uh, wealth more equally, but it, it will take a push from, from people and from politicians for it to happen. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time. Really do appreciate it, and uh, we'll do this again down the line. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. Perfect. That was Alex Hemingway, who is an economist and public finance policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, BC office. Well, i got to take a quick break here on the Jeff Andrea Show. We'll be back shortly. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Health and social service workers delivering in-person frontline care can expect a bit of a raise here. The B.C. government has announced that uh, more than 250,000 eligible frontline workers will receive temporary pandemic pay and a lump sum payment of about $4 an hour for a 16-week period, which will date back to mid-March. I'm joined on the line now by the president of the British Columbia Government and Service Employees Union, Stephanie Smith. Stephanie, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And let me just start off by uh, sending condolences to Kamloops for the tragedy that everybody experienced this weekend with the loss of uh, Captain Jen Casey. Um, you know, my, my heart and thoughts are with everybody there. Well, thank you very much for that, Stephanie. Really do appreciate it. And it has been a, a bit of a, a trying you know, few days here for us here in Kamloops. So we appreciate the kind words for sure. Um, okay, so so let's get into this, um, you know, payment here from from the government. I mean, we're talking about a four dollar an hour for about a sixteen week period lump sum dating back to mid March. So I just wanted to start by getting sort of a, a quick rundown from from you of who is sort of in this initial wave here. What types of employees are we talking about? Obviously, we're talking about frontline service workers, but just more specifically, you know, who is going to benefit from this? Yes. So um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, it, it really encompasses um, social service workers. Uh, health workers, uh, direct government workers that are providing services to some of our most vulnerable people here in British Columbia. Um, you know, it it really was a very expansive and inclusive program. Um, you know, we, with many other unions, wanted to see this applied as broadly as possible. Um, I think we're very lucky to have the government that we currently have in recognizing the, the work that these essential workers are doing. So tens of thousands of, of BCGU members will see the advantage of this program. Um, that is tempered, of course, with the fact that we have thousands of other members who will not be included. And, um, you know, and that's, that's a bitter pill to swallow. And so when we're talking about specifically with the, the BCGEU, we're about 80,000 members, right, are, are about to benefit Correct. from this? Okay. Oh, no. Um, our total membership is uh, just over 80,000, and we believe just about half of our membership okay. will be included in the pandemic pay premium. Perfect. Okay. Thank you for, de for uh, just uh, defining those numbers for me. appreciate that. So, you know, we're, we're only talking about half. I mean, obviously, there's a bit of a gap here uh, from your union's point of view uh, about who is kind of being left out of this program. And I know you have made the calls here. Um, you know, you're saying you're really happy with what has happened so far, but do want to see this program expanded a bit further to cover a few more uh, of your members. So just what types of members are being left out that you would like to see be a part of this? 
Well, I, I mean, it's a, it is a list, um, but, you know, what springs to mind immediately is, is our members who work in um, li- the liquor distribution branch, for example. Uh, they were deemed essential right from the get-go. Our public liquor stores and our public cannabis stores, uh, these are revenue-generating operations for the province of British Columbia. Uh, they were open even before safety measures were put in place, and these are workers that are, are putting their health at risk, um, serving the public, and, um, you know, haven't always been treated in, in the most kind way by consumers. Um, but we also have, you know, members who work uh, uh, here in the Lower Mainland on our ProTrans SkyTrain system, uh, the Canada line. We have members that are meat inspectors where we know we've seen some of the worst outbreaks. We have uh, park rangers. We have uh, highways workers, highways maintenance workers, um, you know, commercial vehicle uh, inspectors all kinds of members who have continued to work right through the duration of the pandemic, serving the public, ensuring that vital services are are continuing, keeping the lights on, if you will, and unfortunately they weren't included. And, you know, when people think about the, the, the essential services that we're talking about here, right, of course when we're talking about, like, frontline and hospital staff, I mean, I think everyone sort of understands the risks that are associated with working in those types of environments, but maybe people don't necessarily appreciate when you're talking about people working in, in like, liquor stores and cannabis stores, they maybe don't appreciate just how many people that they might come to, in contact with on any given day, right? I mean, we're talking about people who probably see, uh, you know, hundreds of people on a, on, a, on a day, maybe a week, or whatever the time period may be, but we're talking about a lot of social interaction that they're going to have to deal with. I mean, these are not necessarily safe places to be when we're talking about a pandemic. Absolutely. And, and you know, in fact, uh, you can look online and see we've had record sales during the two months uh, that we've been experiencing this, this pandemic. We've seen, you know, um, consumers in the, in the stores uh, at numbers that we normally don't see except over the Christmas period. And in some of our stores, you know, it is challenging to maintain social distancing. Um, you know, the use of masks wasn't sort of common prior to, I would say, now. Now we're hearing that, that there is encouragement to wear non-medical masks to not to protect yourself, but to protect others. And our members have worked consistently through this entire period. Um, and as I said, you know, they're, they're generating revenue for the province to provide the other public services that British Columbians rely on, health care, education, and social services. Um, I mean, you talk about the, the use of non-medical masks and, and you know, We've heard a lot of, like, our, I know uh, Teresa Tam, right, the, the Canada's provincial or Canada's health officer has talked about the need to, to or encouraging more people to use non-medical masks. We've seen other provinces, provincial health officers encourage, encouraging people to wear non-medical masks. But here in BC, there's sort of been a hesitance to really encourage it. I know Bonnie Henry has talked about, you know, if you're in a tight space, like uh, if you're taking the bus or something like that, of course, it makes sense because you can't necessarily do that physical distancing. Um, but when, you know, when you're going into, uh, you know, a grocery store or, um, you know, a liquor store, a cannabis store, that's not necessarily something that I think a lot of people are doing. Are you seeing or you are hearing from from your members that there is a bit of an uptake in that? Is there a uh, maybe more of a, a, a concern that people aren't being as as encouraged here in British Columbia to start taking on that practice? Well, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm not a medical expert, and um, I, I think perhaps my understanding of the concern was that people would assume that there was a level of safety provided by using those masks, and that perhaps they would then say, oh, I don't need to socially distance, or I'm not going to wash my hands as frequently as I should. Um, those are the two prime 
primary and most important things. But I, I, I have heard a shift in the in the conversation in the narrative. Um, as a matter of fact, our union uh, we have ordered fabric masks, um, and we will be distributing those to every member who wants one once they come in, um, because again, this isn't necessarily that those masks will protect you, but they may help protect others, especially in in places as you said where you can't maintain social distancing and and we'd encourage people to wear their masks as they're going into our liquor stores or our cannabis stores and you know there are other things that can be done you know don't take a large group of people in with you know what it is that you want to purchase so when you go in you know you're not spending a great deal of time in the store or um, you know just be consciously aware of your distance from others around you particularly our clerks and and those folks who are stocking the shelves and making sure that product's available for you. Yeah, I think there is sort of a, a trend. I see more and more people wearing them as I, I go around yeah. town, and, and and it's just a, something that I think is in our culture, right, is not seen as um, something that people really want to do. And uh, so I think that trend is, is sort of shifting in that direction, but I still think it's going to take quite a bit of time for the general public to really get on board with that. But uh, it, it is going in that direction, and I'm glad to hear that, um, you know, you are encouraging your employees to, or your, your union members, excuse me, to, to do the same. So I think that will make a big difference as well if we see people in the store wearing them, then it might make someone else think, okay, well, if they're doing it, then maybe I should as well. So I think that's an important step as well. Um, uh, going back, sorry, we kind of got off track here, but in that's terms okay. of that uh, $4 per hour um, lump sum payment that's going to be coming, we're talking a little over $2,200. How significant is that for those that are receiving it here in this first wave? Well, certainly for our low-wage sectors like community social services, um, our community health members, members who work in mental health and addictions, you know, this money will mean a lot to them. Um, I think it means a lot to anybody. Um, I think really, though, what it is is it's recognition. Um, You know, it's a statutory amount, but it's priceless in the sense of the recognition of the work that they are doing and, again, the um, additional stress the the risks potentially that they are taking on and I think that that more than anything is why for those who are excluded it's it's such a disappointment um, because it feels like going unrecognized mm-hmm. um, so what are you doing at this stage of the game to, to try to lobby to make sure that those uh, you know about half of your members who aren't being a part of this uh, initial rollout are going to be a part of it what are you doing to encourage the government to in- in- include them as well well, I, uh, first of all, uh, we know that this was a negotiation between the federal government, which is providing 75% of the funding, and the provincial government. So, I, I mean, uh, whenever there's a negotiation between the levels of government, I would imagine that there are criteria or caveats, and we'd really like some clarity on that and, and how the decisions were made, what the criteria was that was applied um, to determine who is in and who is out. Um, we will, as we always do, continue to collectively advocate on behalf of our members in promoting how important the work that they do is. Um, And, you know, uh, I'm encouraging members who 
you know, feel that perhaps they were overlooked or perhaps government didn't understand the the importance of what they do to let their MLAs know, um, you know, there, there are ways to uh, contact your own direct government uh, representatives and I would encourage people to do that and ask those questions, you know, what were the reasons for the decisions you made um, and uh, here's why we think we should be included. Perfect. And uh, just while I have you here, Stephanie, I have one more question for you. I just wanted to ask a little bit about minimum wage here real quick, because I know that's set to go up here in less than two weeks, right? We're talking June 1st, where that uh, minimum wage is going to increase. I guess, is that going to have any impact on your members here? Well, I, I mean, any time that, um, you know, we, we bargain collective agreements for all of our members. Um, I'm... I, you know, it is true that some of those collective agreements are at minimum wage or just above. Um, and so as we see the the floor lifted for all working people in British Columbia, that certainly assists us in making sure that the floors are lifted for our members as well. So we're really, really pleased to see that our government has continued this plan of raising minimum wage. Um, like many other unions, we thought, you know, they could have done it faster and sooner, but but again, you know, I think we're very fortunate to have the government that we have that is putting people first um, when they're making these decisions. And so we're, we're pleased to see the rollout continuing. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, glad to see that some of your members are getting a, a bit of a benefit here. So hopefully it helps out and uh, we can all kind of help get through this pandemic together. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate your time. That was the president of the British Columbia Government and Service Employees Union, Stephanie Smith. Well, let's take a quick break here. And when I come back, I'm set to be joined by the president of the Kamloops Dental Association to see how dental offices in the city are starting to reopen. So that will be coming up next. So please stick around. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for being with me here today on Wednesday. Phase two of the BC Restart Plan kicked in yesterday, and among the businesses that are allowed to reopen are dental offices. How will they do that, and what will sitting in a dentist chair look like? Well, I'm joined on the line now by the president of the Kamloops Dental Association, David Chiriani. David, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome, Jeff. So uh, first off, I guess I'll just ask, are you excited to get back to work? Yes, it will be great to be back at work. Uh, you know, we thank our patients have been so patient during this time. You know, people have had problems and we've had to deal with them over the phone. And, you know, if, unless it was really a severe emergency, there was not much we could do. So we're looking forward to getting people back on track. Yeah, how busy were you during the, the little shutdown here? I know you were allowed to do emergency services or surgery, excuse me. Were you uh, seeing uh, some business from that? Uh, no, uh, the, the uh, Kamloops region, we had a special emergency clinic set up. So what was happening okay. was the majority of dentists were just having to deal with it over the phone with medications. And if people weren't responding, then they had to be referred to that emergency center. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Well, of course, like I said, now you guys can start looking to reopen. And I know that you haven't opened this week, but you're looking towards next week here. So I guess the 25th, right? Monday is probably when you're hoping to start seeing some customers again, some clients, if you will. What will that look like? What is getting into a dentist chair going to look like? 
Well, for the most part, it's going to look fairly similar. Um, the big thing I think patients will notice and what will be really important is that dental offices under the new guidelines will have to contact them and sort of go through a series of questions to determine what their risk level is for having COVID. Um, you know, they'll do that before when the appointment's booked the night before generally. And then when they come into the office again, they'll have to, uh, you know, reinforce that they are healthy. Um, if for the, especially in our, we're lucky enough in our region that, you know, we have a low incidence. So that means that most people we can see, uh, things would look a lot different, you know, for those people who are at risk and, uh, or confirmed with COVID, then those people are, again, supposed to be seen either in an emergency center or we have to don a whole lot more uh, protective gear. And so that's being discouraged seeing those people and keeping those in, like I say, um, an emergency center. Okay, and, and you brought up uh, PPE, right, personal protective equipment, and we know there's a lot of talk about that when it comes to, especially those who are going to be in close contact with people, right? We talk about, like, hairdressers and things along those lines where, you know, you got to wear a mask if you are in the chair and also if you're doing the haircut. But obviously, in a dental chair, I mean, you can't really wear a mask and sit and have your teeth done. That doesn't make any sense. So what types of steps are you doing? Are you taking anything, a, a bit of a different approach as a dentist to, to keep yourself and your clients safe? Well... Um, a lot of what we do, we did already. You know, we've had to deal with H1N1 and SARS, uh, all those things. So that sort of protection is really built into the dental office. Um, one of the things that patients might notice is uh, some are wearing face masks more than, or a face shield more than before, especially, you know, when you're generating an aerosol. Um, so that that is... The biggest change that people would notice is just face shields. Um, besides that, you know, the thing that everyone loves to hate, rubber dams, um, are well proven to uh, reduce the number of pathogens in the aerosols produced. So I think people will see more rubber dam used. Um, you know, we always use high volume suction and that removes 90% of the aerosols produced out of the air. So uh, a lot of the things we're doing already get rid of that, a lot of that risk. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, now, what, what is going on in terms of, of Kamloops here and, and, you know, in terms of the offices that are starting to reopen? Are we seeing any open this week? I know you're specifically looking to open your practice next week. Is there anything that's uh, starting to open up here now? Yeah. Yes, I've heard of several practitioners who actually opened yesterday. They were had supplies already in the organization where they, they could start to reopen. Um, so yeah, there are practices that are open this week in Kamloops, um, and it's really a, a, either a choice of the practitioner and the staff, or it's due to having to get certain things like, you know, we are all become accustomed to having plexiglass shields. I, I think that's one of the things that offices are having trouble getting right now is just the shields at the front desk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that's uh, something I love. I've heard a lot of other business owners talking about is just the need for those uh, those and, and to install them, right? It's not something that every person who owns a business necessarily knows how to go about doing. Um, one more question here for you, David, before I let you go. But the question, this is probably more office specific, but like what is your office doing in terms of rescheduling and getting uh, people, you know, back booked in who had appointments here over the last, you know, six, seven weeks that obviously weren't able to get into the office? Is there sort of a priority schedule that you're looking at? How are you going about doing that? 
Well, yeah, part of our the guidelines, too, like everywhere, we have to limit the number of people we see. So we can't have the same traffic through the office as we were accustomed to before. So that's going to slow things down. Um, I know in our case, what we're doing is all those people who have had issues happen over the last couple months, we are getting them in first, prioritizing what they actually need for treatment, and then doing that sort of in order of the most need, uh, especially as PPE is uh, you know, potentially in short supply. So we want to get the most serious cases taken care of first. And so going back to your question, Jeff, about how the dental office will look different, probably won't see a lot of the more elective procedures like cosmetic procedures uh, and just uh, tooth polishing done. Uh, those things will probably be put on the back burner until uh, the more important things can be covered. Well, it makes sense to me, David, but thank you so much for taking the time. Really do appreciate it. I'm sure there's not too many people excited to get back in the dentist chair, but uh, definitely something that I'm sure many people need to do. So thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, yeah, I'm sure there's some people looking forward to, to getting their teeth uh, looked at here in the near future. Well, you're very welcome, Jeff. You take care. Awesome. That was David Ciriani, the president of the Kamloops Dental Association. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time. While it lasted, I'll be back here tomorrow at noon.